This morning, I want to welcome everybody in the house today to Rainforest Cafe. Rainforest Cafe. No? Is that joke lost on you? You've never been to Rainforest Cafe, seen the mechanical snake in the fog, like volcano burgers? No? That joke was a really great joke. Like, if you've been to Rainforest Cafe, you know. No, this is River West Church. I'm Christopher. I'm one of the teaching pastors. I can't promise that's my only dad joke this morning. They come out. It's not my fault. Raise your hand if you'd like a Bible this morning. As the Bibles come around, you're going to want one this morning as we're landing the plane on our series in Ecclesiastes that we've called The Antidote to Emptiness. And I can honestly say, as I prepared this week, knowing that this would be the last message together in this series, I felt a mix of emotion. I got to be honest with you. I can honestly say on one hand that teaching through the book of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament has truly been one of the greatest joys I've ever experienced as a pastor. Not only because this is one of my very favorite books of the Bible, because I love the ruthless honesty in Ecclesiastes and how it grapples with so many of the things that we wrestle with in life. But also, I found myself actually feeling a hint of sadness as I knew that our time together in this book was wrapping up this week. Similar to that feeling that you get when a great road trip comes to an end. Now, I don't know about you, but as much as I love road trips with all of the anticipation and the buildup before the trip and then the new sights and experiences, I actually tend to dread the drive back home. It's the worst. Anybody feel me on this? Like when the great vacation or the great road trip comes to end, I'm filled with a feeling of dread, knowing that all that awaits me back home is a pile of dirty laundry and a ridiculously long to-do list. But if the road trip was truly epic, then no matter how obnoxious the stack of laundry is or how long the to-do list is, it's absolutely worth it because the journey and the joy of discovery, it outshines the burden of coming back to our lives. And in many senses, senses, that's exactly what the book of Ecclesiastes is like. The preacher Solomon has taken us on this epic road trip, exploring all that life under the sun can offer us. But now as we come to the end of Ecclesiastes, the culmination of our journey, here's what's so ironic and interesting about the book of Ecclesiastes. In the end, Solomon's search for meaning for purpose, for a significance apart from God, it leads him right back to where he started, empty-handed, weary, and road-worn. 
But as we'll see, that's actually the literary genius of Ecclesiastes. Although it leads us right back to where we started, we arrive at this destination changed, different. It reminds me of the, this great quote by T.S. Eliot, where he says, we shall not cease from exploration and at the end of all our exploring will be to arrive at where we started and to know the place for the first time. That's Ecclesiastes. It's gonna lead us right back to where we started in many senses, but as we end our exploration, the exploration really doesn't end. We just arrive back with a different perspective. So as we come to the end of this book, we're coming to the pinnacle moment that every single proverb, every single line of this book has been pushing us towards this crux of the whole book, what the author calls the end of the matter. And as we come to the end of the matter, we're given a gift because we finally discover at the end the only thing that actually matters. So with that, if you wanna to open to the last chapter of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes 12, we're gonna start reading from verse eight this morning. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there's no end. And much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty. Of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. This is God's word. Now, before we unpack this final chapter together, it's once again important to take notice here in this final chapter of Ecclesiastes as to who's doing the talking at the end of this book. There's the Koheleth, or the preacher, Solomon, who actually ends his sermon in verse eight. Take a look, in verse eight, these are the final words of the preacher. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. 
And then in verse 9, there's this moment where the narrator or the author's voice who's collected these sayings, it chimes back in seemingly out of nowhere, almost in this Morgan Freeman-esque sort of way in Ecclesiastes. You're watching the documentary and you're like, oh, there's Morgan again. And he comes back in in this epilogue that frames the whole book. This epilogue comes in, this narrator's voice, and it gives commentary and reflection on Solomon's sermon. That's what an epilogue does. And like all good epilogues, this one serves not to just summarize Solomon's sermon that he's preached, but to help these words sink deeply into our souls and to stir us to action. So if you're the note-taking type this morning, there's three things that this final chapter and epilogue are going to help us examine this morning together. So if you're taking notes, there's three very simple things here. What Ecclesiastes teaches us, we're going to get a recap as to what this book is about. Secondly, how Ecclesiastes helps us And finally, where Ecclesiastes ultimately leads us. So first things first, what does Solomon's sermon in Ecclesiastes teach us? Now, I remember way back in the first preaching class I ever took in college, my professor Marvin Middlebrooks said something that has stuck with me for 25 years. He essentially said that all of the greatest sermons that have ever been preached are really one-point sermons. The goal of a great sermon is to actually preach a one-point sermon, but to hammer it in, if you have three points, to keep hammering the same nail into a board over and over again. And that's what Solomon does in his sermon in Ecclesiastes. It's really a one-point sermon, and he keeps hammering the nail into the board over and over again, making one point a whopping 38 times in this book. And he's repeated this same refrain that we see in verse 8. Vanity of vanities, hevel of hevels, says the preacher, all is vanity, vanity. Now, if you go back to how this book actually began in chapter one, perhaps you remember that the first words of the preacher, the first words of his sermon were these exact same words. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Vanity. So the first and the last words of the preacher, they bookend everything in between. It's a structural law in literature called an inclusio. You begin and end with the same exact phrase to sum up your main point that you're trying to drive home. You see, the preacher over and over again in Ecclesiastes has been trying to show us that life under the sun, which is code for life apart from God, 
is vanity. This Hebrew word hevel that we've heard over and over again that can mean something that's fleeting or impermanent, something that's here one moment and gone the next, like a wisp of vapor or a puff of smoke. But it can also mean something that's futile, that's empty, that's meaningless, like chasing after the wind. And throughout our study in Ecclesiastes, Solomon has taken us on this epic road trip where he's chased after everything that life apart from God, life under the sun has to offer from wisdom and folly to work and wealth to success and power to age and beauty, our work, our relationships and more. Yet by the end of this book, In a very real sense, he brings us to exactly where we started. And apart from God, we're left just as empty, just as unsatisfied as when we started. Because we're chasing after things that are every bit as empty and elusive as the wind. You can't quite catch it. I ran into a story recently of a mishap that happened during a Greyhound dog race in Florida. Have any of you ever seen a dog race before? For those that are unfamiliar with dog racing, to keep the dogs running around a track in the right direction, they're actually trained to chase this mechanical rabbit that actually is always right and out in front of the dogs. That's how these dogs are trained to race. And there's an operator of this robo rabbit. So somebody has a weirder job than you. So this is an actual, actual story that happened. I collect these random things because I'm a weirdo. But during this race, it happened in Florida. You can look this up. The dogs were at their, in their boxes getting to start the race and, and their doors opened. The pistol went off and the robo rabbit guy did his thing. And the dogs took off around the track chasing the rabbit. But after the rabbit made its first turn, something really unexpected and terrible happened. An electrical short caused the rabbit to come to a complete stop and explode, (laughs) sending the rabbit up in flames. And all that was left on this like stick that the rabbit lives on was this black piece of fluff hanging from a wire, and with the rabbit up in smoke, the dogs did not know what to do. They were utterly confused because it's Hevel. And according to news reports, several dogs, they just stopped running and they laid down on the track like with their tongues hanging out. Like, (sighs) (sighs) they just just sat there, two dogs. (laughs) ran into a wall, like one of them injured themselves. Another dog began chasing his tail while the rest just howled at the people in the stands during this race. Not one dog finished the race. 
Why? The thing that they had spent their whole life chasing after went up in smoke. Folks, if we're being honest, all of us from time to time chase after mechanical rabbits of sorts. We spend our life chasing after meaningless things that send us running in circles. What are you chasing after? Is it empty? Like Solomon, all of us, we chase after things apart from God, success, power, money, status, physical beauty, only to watch those things always in the end go up in smoke. Folks, this is why Ecclesiastes is in our Bibles. It gives us grace. It tells us the truth that the things that your race, what you're chasing after, it's empty. And it leads us to actually pursue things that ultimately matter. Within the canon of scripture, I have a chart here. This is what Ecclesiastes does. The Bible starts off in the story of creation and everything is not Hevel, it's Tov in Hebrew. It's together, it's good. But then our parents, Adam and Eve, they eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Evil in Hebrew is ra, which is a word that means to spoil something that's coherent and good and put together and to break it into smaller pieces. And so after the fall, because we rebel against God and we taste of the evil fruit, we live in the book of Ecclesiastes. And I think we all know that life under the sun Life in this world is filled with Hevel. But this book is pointing us beyond the Hevel of life to something greater than life under the sun, the redemption that is found in Jesus Christ. And one day he'll return and not only bring judgment, but restoration. And our world that is fractured will be whole. This is why we need Ecclesiastes, because it tells us the truth of life under the sun and points us to a hope that's greater than Hevel. Amen? Amen. And that hurts at parts. But this is why Ecclesiastes is such a critical book that we should not only read once, but I have come to believe that we as Christians should at least once a year read through Ecclesiastes for our own personal assessment as a litmus test to reveal what are we chasing after? You see, this is how Ecclesiastes helps us. This is where it helps us. And in the epilogue, if you look at verse nine in the passage that we read, this narrator, this author, it tells us why Solomon's words are so helpful to us. So in verse nine, it tells us, besides being wise, the preacher also taught people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight and uprightly he wrote words 
of truth. The first thing that the narrator tells us how this book can help us is it, it tells us this book was not written to depress us or to drive us into despair or hopelessness. Rather, this book, Solomon's Sermon, was written for your delight, to teach you how to live joyfully. You know, it's a sad irony that many Christians overlook Ecclesiastes, Supposing this to be a book that's full of doom and gloom, when this book actually contains what this author calls words of delight, carefully arranged to actually sweeten your experience of life under the sun. Now, although some of you who've followed along with this series, you've heard me say that Ecclesiastes has become one of my very, very favorite books in the Bible, what I didn't tell you is that really wasn't the case for me until I started rereading Ecclesiastes during the pandemic. That's when actually the words of delight in this book came alive for me personally. At a time when all things seem to be filled with weariness, like Solomon says in the first poem in chapter one, all things, the weariness of life, the hevel of life. I felt the sting of toil and the pain that we all experience. I remember one day reading these words in chapter eight, and I commend joy. For man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joy in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. Man, I remember reading that and just going, Lord, that's what I need. And you're commending joy to me here in this world under the sun? Yes. Folks, the God of the Bible is not a killjoy. He's a loving, generous creator who actually commends joy to us. Hasn't he lavished our world with beauty, with goodness? In Ecclesiastes, it can help us actually experience deeper delight in the gifts that God lavishes upon our world, our lives, each day. From our food, to our work, to our friendships, and even our stage of life. Whether you're young or old like me with lower back pain. I have a special relationship with my chiropractor right now. Anyone feel me on that hevel of hevels? I'm on my way like the grasshopper will one day drag his legs. That's <laughs> how I feel every time I go, I go in there. 
However, we all know this, this book is not just filled with words of delight, is it? Nope. In fact, there's many verses in Ecclesiastes where you almost can't help but wince when you read them. Remember this zinger? There's so many, I just pulled one. So many, they sting. Here's, here's a verse where you read it and wince. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath and man has no advantage over the beasts. For all is hevel. I don't think there's any worship songs where we've put that one to music yet. <laughs> wow. Although Ecclesiastes is poignant, it's beautiful, written with great care. It also has a way of poking and prodding us, which is why the narrator of this epilogue compares Solomon's words to God's and nails. We see this again, look in your Bible in verse 11. It says, the words of the wise are like goads, like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They're given by one shepherd. Now goads were a sharp pointy stick, often fixed with nails at the tip. And they were used by shepherds and farmers in the ancient world to keep sheep or oxen or livestock on the right path. So if the animal went to the left, there's pain, they're goaded. And if it went to the right, there's pain, they're goaded. It's telling us that the truths of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes essentially function like the cattle prod of the Bible, leading us away from foolish, empty paths to pursue something infinitely better, namely a shepherd who loves us and wants to lead us down righteous paths. You see, and this is so profound, folks, although King Solomon, who preached this sermon, went to great lengths to carefully weigh and arrange these proverbs and sayings in Ecclesiastes with great care, he tells us that the divine, spirit-inspired wisdom contained in this book was not his own. He didn't come up with this wisdom on his own. Rather, it was given to him by one capital S shepherd. Now, I appreciate the fact that the ESV capitalizes this word shepherd because it's a clear reference to God who's often referred to as a shepherd in both the Old Testament and New Testament. In fact, one of my favorite verses in the Bible that portrays God as a loving shepherd is in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 25. Listen to these words that the apostle Peter wrote when he told the church, for you and I, all of us, we were straying like 
sheep. That's a direct reference from Isaiah chapter 53. And then he tells us, but now we've returned to the capital S shepherd and overseer of your souls. It's a portrait of salvation. All of us like sheep have gone astray, but Peter says, oh, but now you're not lost. For there's a shepherd that you've returned to and now he's your overseer. He's your protector. He's the one who cares for you. Well, I absolutely love this verse. The truth is, before coming to faith in Jesus and returning to my shepherd, I spent years rejecting God's grace and his loving goading. But then again, so did the Apostle Paul. So did the Apostle Paul before he was Paul, when he was Saul, a persecutor of the church, going around rounding up and executing Christians. One day he was on a trip. He was heading down a road to Damascus. And do you remember what happened when the Lord met him and he was not off of his horse on the road, struck blind. What did Jesus say to the apostle Paul on that Damascus road? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. How many of us are kicking against the goads, the loving prodding that God is sending in your life. I think all of us, every salvation story, it involves a bit of goading. The real ones, we spend years sometimes kicking against the loving goads that our Savior sends into our lives. And it might feel painful but the God of the Bible loves us too much to let us go down self-destructive paths of folly. Amen? So he loves us enough to goad us when we need it. And all of this is to lead us actually to the one thing, the one destination that this book has been driving us towards. You see, after all is said and done, Every word in Ecclesiastes was written to goad and guide us back to God. That's the purpose of this book. That's where Ecclesiastes leads us, is to return to the shepherd and to the overseer of our souls. We see this in verse 13 of chapter 12, where we read these words. The end of the matter all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of mankind. This is the crux of the whole book. After all has been heard, there's only one thing that supremely, ultimately matters in life. Fear God and keep his commandments. Now, when you and I 
we hear the phrase, fear God, which Solomon actually tells us to do. He commends this six times in the book of Ecclesiastes. So this is not the first time he's told us to fear God. It just ends actually with this antidote, this medicine, essentially. It actually sounds off-putting to us. This whole idea of fearing God. And while I could honestly preach an entire sermon on the fear of the Lord, let me tell you what this isn't, what it is, and why we need it. Why we need this. For starters, fearing God isn't the same thing as simply being terrified or scared of God. Now, stick with me. Every single person that encounters God in the Bible, as far as I can see, they're initially freaked out and terrified because of how awesome and glorious he is. But if you remember those encounters, whether it's Moses or Abraham, anyone that encounters God, including God made flesh Jesus in the New Testament, it's often found up uh, followed up by fear not. Fear not. People freak out because God's too awesome. He's too glorious. And then the Lord says, oh, fear not, fear not. Or Jesus constantly went around and said the same thing to his disciples. Oh, fear not. So fearing God is not simply being terrified or scared of him. God is, is not just wanting us to go around and to cower in his presence. So it's not what this word means. But at the same time, fearing God is not the same thing as simply believing in God. It's not. In fact, after all, James 2.19 tells us, oh, you believe that God is one? You do well. Good job. Even the demons believe and shudder. So the demons believe that God is one and they are terrified. They shudder. So it's not simply knowledge about who God is. In fact, we see this is kind of hinted at uh, where we see in verse 12, it says, My son, beware of anything beyond these words. Of the making of many books, there's no end. And much study is weariness to the flesh. You, you, you see, you can study the Bible a lot and your life can be absent of the fear of God. You can spend your whole life actually going to church and believe in God. But even the demons believe in God and they shudder. So the fear of the Lord is something different than just an intellectual belief. But if fearing God isn't being afraid of God or simply believing in him, then what, what is it? The most helpful definition I've found of the fear of the Lord is by a theologian, Sidney Gradanus. And listen to these words, incredibly helpful. He says, to fear God is to take God seriously. To acknowledge him in our lives as the highest good. To revere him. To honor and worship him. To center our lives on him. 
That's the fear of the Lord. And it's why fearing God in the Bible is almost always equated with obedience. Because when we center our lives around who God is, when we revere him for what he is and take the God of the Bible seriously, we can't help but honor and obey the commands he gives, not out of fear of judgment, but out of love for who he is. And friends, as surprising as this may sound to some of you, fearing God and keeping his commands is not just a duty, it is a delight that will make you whole. It's not just the whole duty of mankind. Dare I say, that's an unfortunate translation. And it's in almost every translation of the Bible. And this is something super interesting. Although the word duty shows up in most Bible translations, it's not in the original Hebrew manuscript of Ecclesiastes. The literal phrase for the whole duty of man is fear God, keep his commands, for this is the wholeness of man. This is our wholeness. Folks, this is the antidote to emptiness. Fear God. Order your life around who he is. Keep his commands because that's what we're made for. Him. That's the antidote. That's the medicine in Ecclesiastes. And it's what we're made for. Amen. As we close our time in Ecclesiastes this entire week, I've been thinking of how this book leads us to the table, to communion. And as the worship band comes up this morning, I want you to remember a scene from Jesus' crucifixion that the gospel writer Luke captures for us. When Jesus was crucified, he wasn't crucified alone. He was actually crucified between two criminals. And as the crowd hurled insults at Jesus, openly mocking him, one of these two criminals that Jesus was crucified next to chimes in and says these words in Luke chapter 23. Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal actually rebuked what this other thief was saying and said, do you not fear God since you're under the same sentence of condemnation? Do you not fear God? And we are under this condemnation justly for we're receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man, Jesus, has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, 
Remember me. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to to you, today you will be with me in paradise. This criminal had no time or to really obey God's commands. But in that moment, he feared God. He realized his eyes were opened and he realized that he had lived and chased after, spent his whole life chasing after empty things and got a just consequence. And he asked for grace and he received it. During this next song, if, if you, you haven't placed your faith in Christ, Jesus went around and he kept an open table. He just kept giving away invitations of grace. And there is an invitation this morning. If you are here and you haven't accepted Christ as your savior, he was crucified for your sins. You've been led here today so that you might return to good shepherd, the overseer of all things. He bled and died for you. He rose again from the dead to defeat the power of sin and death. If you believe that, you wanna order your life around that, I encourage you, come to the table, receive the bread and the cup. You can pray with somebody next to you. As we celebrate salvation, it's freely given to us, let us pray this morning. Let's humble our hearts, let's fear the Lord. Father, I wanna thank you, Lord, for these often pokey truths in Ecclesiastes. Thank you, Lord, for the way that you lovingly pursue us and when we go down empty paths, you even love us enough to goad us. Father, like this criminal in that scene, we look to you and, and Father, we ask for grace. We receive your forgiveness. We put our hope in you. Teach us to fear you, to honor you, to keep your commands so that the world might see that there is a hope beyond all the hevel, all the emptiness of life. In Jesus' name we pray.